Today on Inland Journal, another program about living life in a world controlled by our reactions to the coronavirus. In Coeur d'Alene, the people who operate Gizmo call their enterprise a maker space, and what they've been making recently are products needed by healthcare workers. So we're making masks and face shields, and the other is we're doing uh, kits for kids who are don't have internet and don't have um, access to Wi-Fi. Barb Mueller is the co-owner of Gizmo. Uh, we are a public makerspace, uh, non-for-profit. We have 11,000 square feet of incredible tools. But the really good thing about a makerspace is not the tools, it's the people. So you have all these ideas that get to come together, and there are people around who can help tame those ideas, which are sometimes eccentric and wild, and create something pretty amazing. Gizmo sponsors classes and summer camps, and they work with teachers to develop projects for students to work on. In this case, they focused on the coronavirus pandemic. They're working with health care providers in the Coeur d'Alene area and with the Idaho STEM Action Network to create personal protective equipment. What we have at Gizmo is a whole bunch of people who have a lot of experience doing engineering and also being very creative in thought. And so we got approached uh, pretty much early on to be able to do some stuff for hospice and also getting involved with the hospital and also with local physicians. And so doing that, we came up with some designs and started to produce them. They're getting okayed and we're in production. They decided to create clear face shields. There's a shortage of materials, so 3D printing them takes long, takes too long, and also you, you were having trouble getting the PETG that you needed for the 3D printers. It's coming back. You can now get some of it, but we couldn't get it then. So we started to fool around to how can we take something that's taking two hours to print and make it be something that's, you know, 10 minutes to cut. And so we started to fool around with different materials and came up with some foam and cut it out on the laser cutter, and it was quick, really quick. And so now we can produce them in a rapid way rather than waiting for each 3D printer to finish finish its print. Gizmo made about 200 of the face shields and delivered them to providers for testing last week. Hospice was a really good example. They took them last week. They uh, let their staff try them on, decide how, how they wanted the bands, what did they feel like, got feedback from them, and then were able to turn around and get it back to them. So ha- having our people, the health providers, be safe is like one of our goals. We really believe that we should be doing our part. And besides, I have to say that when I watch my staff, they feel much better because they are able to contribute and feel purposeful because otherwise it feels sometimes pretty hopeless. Yeah. So you've delivered 200 of them. Are are others coming to you and say, hey, can you make some for us too? Yeah, we're getting that and we're trying to decide how to go forward with that. What's the best way to be able to produce? Mueller's other project is Gizmo to Go, creating projects for kids in homes that have little to no access to technology. And we know that that population is starting to get computers. Uh, There are people trying to get them computers. But also, when they're in their house, they're not necessarily tech-savvy, nor are their parents. So what we're doing is producing kits that will have a STEM project, an art project, um, a puzzle, that uh, a robot to build that's being laser-cut here, and then a journal for them to keep memories of what's going on. There are prompts that will allow them to think about the process of being in the middle of this, make a journal around it, so when they get older, they'll be able to have something that they can say, this is what I remember and this is how I felt. 
Barb Mueller is co-owner with her husband Marty of Gizmo Makerspace in Coeur d'Alene. She has one final thought about the coronavirus. Being able to do something at this time is so important. I think everybody would like to have a way to be able to do it, and they can. There are so many needs right now in the community. The Salvation Army just put out a call. They need, you know, thousands of masks for the people that are living in their facilities and the people that they service. So those are kinds of things that everybody can do and contribute to what's going on in our community. Dentists are people who could use some of those face shields. Their life has also changed in terms of the number and type of patients they see. This week, we talked with Dr. Elizabeth Warder. She's a dentist at Chaz Health in Spokane. We have um, scrubbed our schedules, and we've asked people who are coming in for simply routine care to delay that care and uh, keep appointments available for those who really, really need it, like severe pain, um, minor swelling, fracture of a tooth if it's painful. Those particular situations have not been um, forbidden for, by the governor to um, engage in care in those particular cases. So um, what's really important is that we want the people, um, if they have a dental problem, unless they absolutely have to, to stay out of the emergency room and, and um, seek care from their dentist. Or if they don't have a dentist, they could certainly... Um, use Dentist Link as a tool to try and establish care with someone. But if it's just a minor problem, the, something that can wait for a month or two, we just would really want people to stay home and, and not seek care under those circumstances. And what? tell me about the types of precautions that, um, that you and your colleagues are taking to, to protect yourselves. So we're using N95 masks, and that's... Um, a mask that will filter out the virus, um, and it's covered by another mask to try and keep it, uh, help its lifespan extend, and then also a face shield in addition to hair cover, eye protection, and a full-length gown and gloves. Is it difficult to work with all that stuff on your face? Yeah, it's a little, it takes some getting used to. <laughs> So for folks who are calling and who are insisting, Doc, I'm in terrible pain, what's your best advice for them? Well, uh, an an antibiotic may be appropriate, um, and it depends on on the level of pain, too. You know, if if it's something that can be medicated, not keep them awake at night, and not interfere with their ability to function in life, then, yeah, they should probably not come into the dentist. But if it's really, really severe pain and it makes the patient unable to eat, unable to sleep, something will have to be done for that patient. If you have a dental issue you consider severe, you can visit Dentist Link. That's a website operated by the Arcora Foundation and Delta Dental that helps to match patients with dentists who are accepting patients right now. You can find it at DentistLink.org or access it through the Smile Spokane website. Again, Warder says the goal is to keep people with dental issues out of hospital emergency rooms. Just as dentists have cut back on elective and non-emergency surgeries, so have hospitals. Alan Fisher is the CEO of Mid-Valley Hospital in OMAC. How has uh, the coronavirus restrictions that are imposed by the governor and others, how has that affected the way you do business? It's greatly affected the way we do business. Um, One of the key points at 
is out there is the um, moratorium on elective surgeries. Elective surgeries for us contribute 500000 a month to the bottom line. Uh, and so that revenue stream right now is, is not there, which puts us in a financial bind. Uh, currently, we live paycheck to paycheck, essentially, uh, or check to check. Um, today, for example, we have 10 days of cash on hand. If the uh, money stops, or we're in trouble, just like a lot of other rural hospitals uh, that are out there. Um, th there are some relief, but the relief isn't coming to us fast enough. And who's the relief coming from? The Stimulus Act that um, the federal government has uh, been talking about. And do you know what's headed your way in terms of that? No, we don't. We don't have um, any type of a um, monetary clue. How much do you figure you need to, to stay whole? If we, for the next three months total, uh, if we could get uh, at least $1.5 million, um, we would... We would make it. We'd be okay. But it still, it still puts us in a, a very tenuous uh, situation because, again, of our margins being so tight. Are there, are there real concerns that you might have to close your doors? Uh, no, that will not happen. I, by managing um, the accounts payable and, again, matching that with what we know is coming in, uh, we're going to exercise uh, extreme uh, fiduciary responsibility to ensure that this does not happen. So are there other ways that restaurants, for example, are doing takeout or pickup sorts of things? Are there any things that you can do that are out of the ordinary to provide service to your community that would help with that cash flow? Not really. Um, because, again, most, most of what we do is, is generated as a result of coming to the hospital, or we have a rural health clinic also, or coming to the clinic. It's interesting that we see out there, for example, our emergency room used to, uh, the volumes used to be uh, between 25 to 30 patients per day. Now they've dwindled down to uh, 13 to 15 per day. Once in a while, they'll hit 30 on the weekend. So we've seen marked decreases in uh, ER utilization. And are the other hospitals up in your area in north central Washington under the same sorts of pressures? Yes, they are. We all are all under because, again, uh, with the moratorium on elective surgeries, that's pretty much a rural hospital's uh, bread and butter. Have you had to lay off people? What we're doing there is either a reduction, for example, in uh, we have low census. So, again, uh, those folks would take time there. Or we've redeployed, for example, the OR crew. Uh, we redeploy those folks to other areas of the hospital. The goal being um, not to lay anybody off, which we have not at this point. I'm hoping that the, the folks out there, such as the unions, can understand the financial constraints that our hospitals are in and be part of the solution uh, with us in maintaining our organization to keep up not only providing health care to the OMAC Open On community, but also sustainability and uh, their livelihoods, our staff livelihoods. Have you had those discussions with them? Uh, not at this time. So this all came on pretty quickly. I mean, how well were you able to sort of prepare for this and, and say, uh, we know that there are going to be tough times coming? We instituted our incident command, I believe, on March the 4th. And um, we, so we've been at this now for a good uh, month and a half. 
uh, through all this, uh, we continue to plan out what our needs are going to be, what we think the needs are going to be um, in the future, looking primarily at two-week um, increments. We were already practicing um, financial controls prior to this, so that's nothing new for us um, as we move forward. Is, is your hospital funded by a hospital district, or is yours a private organization? We're a hospital district. Okay. So you've got, you've got that backstop of the, the, the taxpayer money to help there? Not really. The taxpayer money um, just goes into our general fund. Um, if we cannot rely on the county, for example, to bail us out, it's, it's up to us to bail our own selves out. The county really doesn't have that kind of money to, to assist. So you've got CARES Act money. Did, did, was any of the money that came from the state in terms of coronavirus aimed at hospitals like yours? We received 142000 from the state. And then we received a advance, if you will, an advance payment on our, what they call this disproportionate share of approximately 126000 there. But the, the real caveat in that is that money is, was planned for months later. Now, months later... We're not going to see that money because we have it now. Under the accelerated, for example, under the accelerated Medicare uh, program, where they uh, basically loan the hospital um, a specific amount of money based on the on the numbers of Medicare patients you treat, that's now that is considered a loan also. So, with hospitals like ours that are in a tenuous financial position, are given a loan. We have to manage that loan because, again, um, our debt capacity is not there. I know that uh, state legislators have talked about perhaps the need for another special session later this year. Um, Are you talking with your legislators about, hey, we really could use some more help here? Always. Uh, We've reached out to our legislators both at the state level and the federal level. Alan Fisher is the CEO of Mid-Valley Hospital in Omak, Washington. A few weeks ago, when the Puget Sound area was going through what appears to be the worst of the pandemic, Washington Governor Jay Inslee brought in someone to be the COVID czar. Dr. Raquel Bono is a retired vice admiral who agreed to move from the right coast to the left to oversee the state's response to the virus. Correspondent Tom Bonsi has this profile. Vice Admiral Raquel Bono was six months into retirement after a long career in military medicine and healthcare administration. She was at home in Alexandria, Virginia, in mid-March, watching the coronavirus outbreak unfold. I was like, oh, I know what we need to do here. And on the other hand, I was relieved that I was not in charge <laughs> of that military health system. Then her cell phone started buzzing with texts and calls. It was Washington State's governor's office on the line looking for someone to take charge of hospital surge capacity. It wasn't long before Governor Jay Inslee himself dialed the trained Navy surgeon to close the deal. I asked the governor, I said, sir, when do you want me? And he says, well, if I had my, my way, I'd ask you to pack a small bag now. <laughs> and, that, and that was, I think, uh, Friday mid-morning. And then I was on a plane on Sunday, and I started the following Monday. Governor Inslee's chief of staff, David Postman, says the whirlwind cross-country recruitment stemmed from a realization that the state needed a hospital czar. It had to be someone who could command power and respect to coordinate disparate hospitals and long-term care companies, testing sites, and possible field hospitals. 
But it just became very clear that it was just a massive endeavor to try to manage our hospital system sort of as a piece. You know, they, they, they're all independent operators. The retired Vice Admiral Inslee enlisted for this health system czar role is an outsider. Dr. Bono has never lived in the Pacific Northwest before. She didn't know her new state government co-workers or many of the hospital CEOs she would be dealing with. Bono says her military experience helped. I think my training as a trauma surgeon has really taught me that remaining calm in all types of crises is the first order of business. But being in the military, I think what that has taught me is that there is an orderly way that you can approach most problems and create a series of solution sets. Bono says in her new role, she works closely with the State Emergency Operations Center and the State Department of Health to evaluate what hospital capacity is needed and then to marshal resources to meet it. Bono says she's cautiously optimistic after her first two weeks on the job. As we're looking at what the modeling shows and what our original or our current numbers for capacity show, we feel that collectively across the state that we have enough beds to take care of those patients that we are projecting may need hospitalization. Reassuringly, we also appear to have the right number of ventilators. Washington State Hospital Association leadership met with Dr. Bono on her first day on the job and have talked with her often since. Hospital Association President Cassie Sauer says Bono made a good first impression and then made some hard asks, improving data reporting for one. Returning ventilators to the national stockpile for use by harder-hit states was another, and most recently, to conserve personal protective equipment. If she's directing, we will follow, because she's excellent at getting input from a broad variety of people, synthesizing that information, and then setting a course that we can believe in. Sauer and some folks in the governor's office have gotten comfortable enough with the new czar on the block to address the retired vice admiral by her nickname, Rocky. When most people hear that Rocky Bono is coming, if they've never met me, I tend to surprise them when I walk through the door. I don't think I'm the prototype for a Rocky. (laughs) Says the friendly 63-year-old Filipino-American mother of three. When her husband or daughters ask when Bono plans to return home to the East Coast, she says her answer is, I'm here for the duration, whatever that is. I'm Tom Bonsi in Olympia. The coronavirus isn't affecting just the health care system. Businesses that have had to close or idle many of their operations are moving fast to apply for government aid under the CARES Act. And now it's planting season for farmers, who have to worry about who will be buying what they grow and whether they might have to adjust. Correspondent Anna King has more. It's springtime. The same birds sing. Emerald shoots are pushing up from the earth. Irrigation sprinklers tick like clocks same as always. But so much else has changed. And farmers wonder, can they get her done safely? First crop up? Asparagus. Jim Middleton's farm crew is washing stacks of plastic boxes. They'll be packed with fresh cut asparagus while workers keep their distance from one another. Yeah, you know, on the field standpoint, I don't think it'll be that bad because usually the crews are only one or two people. They're usually family members. Uh, We're not ever congregating into big groups. But the packing shed is a much smaller space. Harvest begins in just a few days, and he's had little time to react. The thing about asparagus is harvest is brief and intense, 
going every day for 10 weeks. Just one or two virus cases could cripple his operation. So we can't take a two-week break in case people get sick. Uh, you know, without a, without a regular workforce every single day, we're going to get backed up uh, quickly and, uh, and have a lot of product we wouldn't be able to pack or to sell. Um, and that could get upside down in a big hurry. Some farmers have told me off the record they're really worried. They can't find the normal cleaning supplies required by the federal government pre-pandemic. Stuff like bleach for wiping down worker stations. They're also worried about training their staff in time especially in fruit and vegetable processing facilities where workers are often shoulder to shoulder. We're going to check uh, people for temperatures uh, coming to work. Phil Klaus with Gourmet Trading Company out of Pasco says he's more mechanized, but he's still mandating all workers in the processing plant wear hairnets, aprons, gloves, and handmade masks. They will also be cleaning the entire large facility more than the usual twice daily. Anybody has a fever over 100, I don't know just what the, what the parameter is, then we're not going to be, they're not going to be allowed inside and, and uh, then we'll ask them to go home and, and quarantine themselves. Still coming, some of the Northwest's most intensive hand-picked crops, cherries and blueberries, they'll be ready to harvest in late May and early June. Growers worry that there may not be enough pickers. Mike Gempler is the executive director of the Washington Growers League, a nonprofit advocate for farm labor and employment. He says since the Trump administration has tightened the border with Mexico, only certain H-2A visa workers are being allowed to come up. Gempler says Northwest growers might be as short as much as 30% of their normal guest workers. Safely housing them will be a big issue too. Many usually sleep in bunk beds, four to a room. Gempler says it's all about keeping six feet apart in tight quarters and hand washing. Having hand sanitizer in every room, having disinfectant wipes uh, available at every entry and exit door. And the crews usually ride to the fields in packed vans. But there may be a solution to the worker shortage. Locals who just lost their jobs are starting to come to work the harvest. I'm Anna King in Pasco. Next week on Inland Journal, those who work in the domestic violence field worry that all this togetherness we're experiencing cooped up at home is not always a good thing. If you're living in you know, close proximity with someone and it's unsafe, it's going to be really hard in this environment for you to get enough space so to speak, that you can be in a place where you can reach out. We'll look at a new public awareness campaign by advocates who work with domestic violence survivors. Also, a look at how the UW Medical School has adapted its curriculum to overcome coronavirus restrictions. That's next week on Inland Journal. You hear it every Thursday on the radio or listen anytime to the podcast. Find that at the Spokane Public Radio website at Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and NPR One. Thanks for joining us. I'm Doug Nadvornik.